This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It's Thursday, the day we look at all things municipal. And once again, we begin in Brampton, where we have the latest example of a deeply divided city council playing out in public. So the city's former integrity commissioner, Muniza Sheikh, is suing Brampton and city councillors who voted to fire her for $20 million. She's arguing that her firing was part of a conspiracy by some councillors who were not happy over previous or ongoing investigations, ethics investigations into them. It's a lawsuit that apparently has the support of Mayor Patrick Brown. Meanwhile, in a presser earlier this week, Brown alleged that municipal funds were used for what he called hush payments in a city councillor's sexual harassment lawsuit, and that that happened without it being approved by himself or city council. Okay, so that was the issue where someone complained against a councillor, Gurpreet Dillon, and uh, this was settled out of court in a civil case. But, you know, uh, the rules say that if there's anything like this involved, it should be made public, and the complainant had to solve an NDA. And meanwhile, still with things integrity commissioner... Um, here in Toronto, there's an integrity complaint that has been filed against Mayor John Tory, arguing that his ties to Rogers are a conflict of interest. And that is a pretty straightforward thing that seems to be in the purview of a an integrity commissioner. Also, the price of a detached home has fallen in the first time in forever. So, uh, Is real estate more affordable now? And finally, Toronto was just ranked the hardest city to navigate in the world. People, really, do we deserve that? And now, it's time to tune into the town. And now I'm joined by Lauren O'Neill, Senior News Editor at Blog TO, Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village, and David Crombie, former Mayor of Toronto. Hi, everyone. Hello, Libby. Hi, Libby. Okay. Hi, Liv. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? <clears throat> Excuse me. So, uh, this integrity commissioner brouhaha. Karen, would you like to start us off? <laughs> sure. It's a... It's certainly a, it's a quagmire. I'm trying to figure out exactly how all the pieces fit together, and it's not clear that they do right now. Um, and it's also a bit unclear why, you know, first and foremost, why the Integrity Commissioner would file a judicial review, because the reality is councils can terminate a contract as long as the person that they're terminating receives adequate compensation. So as long as they pay her out, they can terminate her for whatever reason they want. Procedurally, it appears to be in order. What's interesting is that Patrick Brown is now getting behind it. So 
as some sort of claim that that she's been um, let go because of because of her work investigating counselors. So, but that's her job. So all of it seems to be very muddled and confusing. And but fundamentally, I would I would I would wonder why is she doing this? Because even if she's proven successful, how can she possibly go back to that position? Well, and and seventy five some. $750,000 in fees is a lot of money. Uh, so, yeah, that was one of the allegations that she charged too much. Uh, I was just going to point out Muniza Sheikh is an employment lawyer. So lawsuits over dismissal, uh, that's what she does uh, or, yeah. or has done uh, in the past. And I don't know if she's still with the firm, what the deal is there. Uh, but that, certainly that firm's representing her. David Crombie, what do you make of it? Well, it looks like it's an on- part of an ongoing struggle for Brampton to, to do its business in order. I mean, it, uh, it's, it has a bit of a tradition in the recent past of, uh, of, of, of not uh, of having great divisions within its council and warring factions within its council. That looks like it's continuing. I guess a couple of things occur, occur to me, uh, and, and that is that the, the council obviously needs a full-time mayor, uh, and, it, and it seems to me that but whatever value, and I think he's been a good mayor, generally speaking, um, you can't do it in a part-time way. It's a big city. And so he needs to, there needs to be within the council itself an understanding that the mayor has, has an authority that needs to be respected. And he wasn't there, to, I, I gather then, because he was busy elsewhere, uh, 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 attending, attending to the business of the council. I think the other thing that, that, uh, that impresses me uh, is that the council itself is so divisive that, uh, that we, you can only hope that the, that the forthcoming election is going to be able to allow the council to start anew with a with a mayor that can be there full time. Lauren, uh, what about you? It was interesting earlier this week. Uh, this whole business of uh, and it's hard for me. In some places, I see it characterized as sexual harassment, in others as sexual assault. So uh, uh, and it ended in a civil suit by this complainant, which the city settled out of court. Patrick Brown said that neither he nor council approved it, uh, which leaves you to wonder who did. (laughs) And it wasn't disclosed. So how do you see that? Right. So a lot of times in cases that have to do with sexual harassment and, and sexual assault, uh, the there are confidentiality clauses. So the victim is not named. Um, so nobody really knows what went on there. But the fact that the victim or the alleged victim was paid $60,000 says that something might have been amiss. I, I mean, I'm not really quite sure. And the fact that nobody knew that he paid this money is a little suspicious to me. Um I think the whole thing is... It was the city. It wasn't him. Oh, but like that nobody knew that the city, I guess, had paid like that. It just seems all a little bit suspicious. And, and I think it's just ironic because uh, Patrick Brown said recently that Dylan had told him he had made it his mission to get the integrity uh, commissioner fired. And one of the reasons for that is because she had charged $750,000 since the beginning of 2020. And it was just way too much money. I mean, they... The, Peel has a cap, I guess, on it of $110,000 a year. So how did she even get that much money in the first place? Like, who was approving that? Who is making all of these secretive payments that the public isn't knowing about in Brampton? That's kind of what I'm interested in. It's, it's all feeling like a big soap opera at this point. We've now got a $20 million lawsuit for conspiracy, something that Mayor Patrick Brown is no stranger to. Like, <laughs> this is just a whole big, a lot of drama. 
It, it is a lot of drama. And David or Karen, who would have uh, signed that $60,000 check if uh, the mayor didn't know about it and council didn't know about it? Well, that, that's the part that's not clear to me, uh, because if, if, the, if the council didn't do it, and uh, I'm maybe sure the mayor can do it on his own, but if, if he or didn't do it or the council didn't do it, then clearly someone in the bureaucracy must have signed the check if there was. So that's a, a totally different matter because that's got to do with, with, a, with a, 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 probably a failure of, of employment duties. So, Karen? Not really, because certainly at council, we didn't, um, there were thresholds. And if, if certain payments fell below a certain threshold, then council approval wasn't needed. Because there is an acknowledgement that there's a lot of business done and conducted at the city. And so we, I, I believe that Patrick Brown and the council probably didn't approve this payout that there's because it was probably within the city manager's threshold to sign off of on. Um, so from, from a, from a bureaucratic and from an administrative lens, everything is probably in order. From a political lens, there is probably a question whether or not council should have been made aware of this payment because it is, uh, settled out of court, of course, there's non-disclosure agreement, of course, but that city funds are being used to settle a claim of sexual harassment is, is probably something that should have been brought to council's attention, even if the signing authority, even if the city manager had the signing authority to deal with it on their own. You know, I, I looked up the rules for integrity commissioners, and they changed in 2019. And cities were, at that point, required to have a code of conduct and an integrity commissioner. And according to the explanation I saw, which is from a law firm that specializes in this, it says uh, the Me Too movement and recent focus on workplace harassment has increased the appetite for processes that hold public officials to account for inappropriate behavior. A code of conduct can be used to address those behavior, and uh, it would give the integrity commissioner the responsibility for investigating allegations through a public process. But it also says municipalities can decide if it's better to do it uh, a little more quietly. Uh, so could that new uh, legislation uh, regarding what integrity commissioners do, could could that be a reason for Muniza Sheikh's $20 million lawsuit? Silence. David? <laughs> Hello. Hello, yes. Do you think that could be a reason? Because well, of the- I, I have not, I, I have to say quite frankly, I have not followed what the responsibilities of the integrity commissioner ought to be, So, which, which is why I've attached more responsibility uh, to the political, uh, political responsibility. Okay, um, so let's... But it is strange. $20 million for a conspiracy is strange. Like, I, and I and I'm guessing because to your point, Libby, like she's she came from a firm that does employment law. She's familiar with employment law, so she knows she really doesn't have a case from an employment law perspective. So that's why she's taking this route. But it's very very strange. Okay, well, uh, that is an interesting perspective. Let's turn to uh, a more straightforward thing. So there is an integrity complaint against Mayor John Tory because of his ties. To Rogers, uh, he's come under fire for that before. He said, look, I have been clear about that from the beginning. It's a long-standing family uh, commitment that I made to the late Ted Rogers. And uh, he also does make a tidy six-figure amount from it. Uh, what do you think of that? 
Lori? I mean, is it, well, uh, oh, I think sorry, it may have touched on this before. I'm not sure, but 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 at any rate, uh, I think the mayor is correct that he, he has been quite public about his connection with Rogers. I think on uh, about two dozen occasions, he's he's declared a conflict when he thought that was appropriate, and so I, it seems to me that that there's more there may be something technical about uh, about it. I don't know that, but certainly in terms of his moral position on the matter, I think the mayor's done done exactly what he should have been doing. So there is a little bit of a technical weirdness going on here. Not weirdness. It's it, it makes sense. So Tory has been very forthcoming about his connection with the Rogers Family Trust, the $100,000 salary he gets for that every year. Somebody has made a complaint under the Municipal Conflict of Interest Act specifically because Tory voted on active TO and whether or not to continue road closures. He did not disclose in that that he has ties with the Rogers family. And it goes without saying that Blue Jays games and, and you know, the Rogers Center kind of factored into that. The president of the Blue Jays wrote in. And so what the person filing the complaint is alleging is that Tory should have just disclosed in that specific meeting, that specific vote, or abstained because it's a conflict of interest. So that is the one little it, – it's been a big thing for a long time. This People have been kind of leery about the Tory-Rogers connection, but this is just one specific vote that the person is is taking on um, that kind of – illustrates the entire situation. Karen, I mean, he's been very open about it, but politics is a lot about perception. And even if he's done everything or everything except this one thing totally correctly, it's still, it does bother a lot of people. Yeah, you know, I can see how it does bother a lot of people, but but I got to be honest with you, I think this is much ado about nothing. And the reality is he didn't have a conflict of interest on that vote. He did not stand to gain any financial benefit one way or the other, whether active TO proceeded or didn't proceed. To suggest that somehow the Blue Jays um, had undue influence over the mayor because he's a member of this Rogers Trust Board is such a stretch for me that I, I can't even... I mean, if you're upset with Tory and you're looking for reasons to be upset, then you can find this one, I suppose. But objectively speaking, this is... This is as far away from a conflict of interest as anything that I've ever seen in my 11 years on council. Hmm. Uh, it's interesting. Uh, he may have had uh, the undue influence because he was a Jays fan. I would think he's a big sports <laughs> fan. <laughs> no, I'm serious, actually. <laughs> yeah, no, I could, that would be, that would actually complain may have been more legitimate. <laughs> but I mean, Karen is totally right when she says that if people are looking for reasons to hate Tory, they'll find them. Like, I'm sure you all follow the TO hashtag TO Polly um, hashtag on Twitter yeah. or gaze, just look at it every once in a while. And it's like anything Tory does. Um, there are the people that hate him and the people that like him. And they're going to jump on something like this, regardless of whether it's a legitimate conflict of interest. Um, people are going to go to the lengths where they're going to file an actual conflict of interest claim uh, because that's just their position on him as a mayor. And uh, a lot of people hate Rogers, too. So, uh, Well, I, yeah. I would think more people hate Rogers, hate Rogers. Oh, yeah. at yeah. this moment. Yeah. Uh, and I was going to say time on your hands to make a formal complaint. Yeah, that too. But let's talk about the other uh, favorite preoccupation of people in Toronto, and that's real estate. And for the first time since prices began plummeting earlier this year, the average price of a single detached home in Toronto was lower than it was a year ago. 
here, here. And uh, the average price of a detached home in the greater Toronto fell by 3.1% to a measly $1.36 million in July. Uh, so is that going to do anything to solve the housing crisis and the affordability crisis? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I don't think it'll do much. I, it's nice to see it trending in that direction, but I still think it's not going to go too much lower because as we see um, buyers kind of pull back and sales figures drop, we're seeing so many sellers just simply taking their places off the market. Well, I'm just going to hold it then. I'm not going to sell now because I won't get as much money as I could have six months ago or maybe six months down the road. So unless we really bolster supply and get more listings out there, it's not going to do a whole lot. Karen? Well, I think that uh, what we're seeing is just the tip of the iceberg. I think if the rates stay the way they are um, and people are up for renewal next year and they had locked in at something ridiculous at 1.9 and now they have to renegotiate at at a much higher rate, that's when we're really going to see the impact of the rate increase. So we've seen an initial impact where people are, are, are maybe not jumping into the market because money is more expensive, but people who jumped in when money was cheap and now have to renegotiate their uh, their fixed rate, that's when we're going to see the real hurt. And that's when we're going to see people that have to make decisions around whether they can afford to live in their homes. And that's when we're going to see the price fall even further. Because, I mean, the reality is prices jumped exorbitantly, and the, the down 3% is still only a fraction of, of where they rose to. So I, I think the pain is just beginning on this one. Well, I mean, I think that, you know, when, when I looked at... 40% in a year. I, I remember previous real estate insanity and that outdoes everything. Mm-hmm. So uh, this could just be uh, the very top of the froth. David, how do you see it? Well, yeah, there's no doubt that the market is going to have volatility over the next while. And that, and, and that, and that will play out very many ways that, 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 that some of those touched on by, by Karen. Um, but I, but I think it's also going to last long enough. Uh, that it's going to cause uh, uh, governments at all, at all three levels uh, to look at their housing policy again. The current the current provincial policy of either tall or sprawl and new housing um, is not is not going to be able to I think, stand the time. And so I think you're going to see a revision in people's understanding of their role as a government, all three governments uh, in housing and, and and particularly with affordable housing. You know, I saw one prediction of an actual real estate crash, and uh, generally uh, the reaction is to poo-poo it. And I'm just remembering, uh, this is uh, the, I come from 1989, so I remember my husband and I were both business reporters, and we bought a tiny little place on the Danforth at the very top of the market, not believing uh, there had already been the Jeff Rubin prediction. And lo and behold, it crashed very shortly thereafter. Now, we were able to capitalize on it. We sold our tiny little house at a loss and bought a much better house um, at a better price. But uh, I'm just wondering, you know, everybody says it's not possible. We have too many people, too many immigrants, too many people who want to buy here. Karen, do you think it, it's possible such a thing, an actual crash? I absolutely do. I absolutely do. I remember 1989, and um, you know, people had to people had to walk away because their house was worth less than their mortgage. Right. 
And, you know, people who have a million-dollar mortgage, it's not beyond the realm of possibility that they could find their house worth less than their mortgage. And if you can afford to, you know, and it took 10 years. It took 10 years for that housing market to reestablish itself and get back to where it was. So if you can afford to hang on to your house and ride the storm, then you'll probably be okay. But, you know, there is, there is going to be painful for a lot of people that jumped in with huge mortgages, small down payments. The housing market will, it, we're, this is not the beginning. Like this, is, this is the beginning of the decline. There's also this thing happening with condos. So now we're seeing predictions that a huge number of condos uh, that are disrupting traffic and construction has begun are going to be put on hold because of the drop in the market. And, you know, I look at this and I think some of these developers are just out of control. I don't know how they have the right to kind of do this. Um, I think we're going to be short 10,000 units or something because of this, or maybe more. Um, it's just they don't want to be selling condos right now because rates are, uh, prices are a little bit lower than they could be. Um, I mean, I think that from what I've seen, and, and I'm not, not an expert on this at all, I mean, when more supply is on the market, prices are more competitive. And so if, like with the lending rate increase, like what Karen said, if a whole bunch of people are going to be, you know, moving out of their homes, that could definitely free up a lot of condos, houses alike for, you know, prices to go even lower. So I do see the possibility of a crash in the next couple of years. But with condos specifically, like a lot of people now are not even buying homes they are not looking to buy homes. They're looking to buy townhouses, condos. Um, if you look at the Treb, uh, Toronto Regional Real Estate Board numbers that came out this morning, they showed that um, sales numbers, at least for detached homes, went down year over year, whereas townhouses were up, I think, 17%. Um, condos were up, apartments. Uh, so it's with if they're going to stop building more condos, People need a place to live. The population is growing. And I think we're seeing that in rent prices increasing as well. If you can't afford a place to live, you need to rent. So we need as many affordable condos as possible for people to be able to live in and buy. So if they're stopping because of money reasons, because they might not get, you know, a fraction of a dollar more than they would have, that's just, I don't know how that's legal or it's not moral. Well, so I looked up the numbers and developers are expected to delay building 10,000 units. Yeah. And we've all heard those stories where people bought pre-construction and suddenly they're held hostage for huge increases. And now this, I mean, David, do we need um, more regulation, more laws, I mean, on this? I think we do. And I think also we need to have more uh, direct government participation in the provision of housing. We've not, we've not done that in a significant way now for many, many years. But, but we need to have the governments, all three governments, involved in a housing policy that allows for affordability, but also at the same time has a, the development industry, and most of them are good at it, uh, the development industry making sure that we're not manipulating supply and demand in a way that simply deals with a, a, a price that's favorable to the developer and not to the consumer. Yeah. Um, for the last few minutes, I want to turn to, uh, I guess it's a, a, a fun story, but not so much fun if you're driving around. So uh, <laughs> we got a number one slot in the hardest city 
to navigate in the world. And I say, really? Come on, Lauren, do you believe that? It's really difficult to say as someone who lives here. I mean, in London, England, that is a lot harder for me to navigate on the other side of the road with all the roundabouts than it is Toronto. But I can see where people are coming from, especially um, with things in place like the King Street pilot project that is now just permanent. Um, There are a lot of rules about... You can't turn here, but you can go only go straight. Um, there's no parking here between four and six, which I think is standard everywhere. I mean, it's really hard to navigate generally because it, it's always under construction and there are road closures. But I don't particularly see Toronto being any like more weirdly laid out or, than many, many other cities in North America. David, is this unfair on us? I'm sorry? Is this unfair being called the hardest city to navigate in well, the I world? Don't know where they go. <laughs> I've been in a lot of cities where it's really hard to get around. But I, but I think, I guess I could, the best light I can put on it is that we are currently now in the midst of finding a place for the automobile that we had that we had previously just ignored. And that is, what's the role of the automobile now? 130 years ago, when, when or 120 years ago, when automobiles came to the city, they transformed the city. And now when we're using the automobile less, and we're trying to have people be living uh, in communities that where you live, work, and play, rather than the separation of uses, the car is going to be increasingly not important. And so the streets show that. The streets are, the streets are now being used for uses that were not there before. That is going to continue. So it's, uh, it's I guess, sad to say, but on the other hand, it's the way of the future. I think it's going to be messy for a while. I have no doubt about it. Okay, you know, I, I'm going to say I bet tomorrow we'll have shout outs from our bike lane haters <laughs> and our uh, cafe TO haters and active TO haters. Um, so I, I await that uh, deliciously. Karen, what do you think of that designation? Well, if by navigating they mean getting from A to B um, in a short period of time, then I 100% agree with it. Because, as David mentioned, the road configuration has changed. Add that, then add in construction, then add in, you know, as Lauren mentioned, special projects around transit uh, pilots, which are all legitimate, mind you. But, I mean, like, Eglinton is impossible to navigate. Uh, oh, yeah. Young Street is very difficult to navigate. Danforth, I mean, I know, I know what they're trying to do on Danforth. Very difficult to navigate. And so, yeah, I think that, I think that we actually deserve that title. You know, I'm looking out the window (laughs) and there's a big, huge construction crane parked here and uh, there's nobody there working on it. So uh, (laughs) I usually do see a couple of guys uh, taking a break there uh, and the rest of the street going one way. It's East Liberty is blocked off and it has been thus for a very long time. Uh, And um, yeah. Uh, so, right? Was, it's just hard to get around. It's like for a, a city that's built on a grid system, it should be quite easy to, to navigate and negotiate, but it's it's tough. And and I just uh, saw something from City Hall, or was it from the mayor saying there were some complaints about uh, phantom construction projects, roads closed with construction equipment and nothing happening for days. And and uh, I think City Hall said that they would have a look at that. Well, they're going to maybe investigate, make a report like they always, you know, investigate, consider writing a report on it. I don't know what they're going to do about it. But that's that is a recent complaint that people have had. There's so many of these just bulldozers and I don't know the right terms, but, you know, construction 
equipment just closed off. Um, nobody's there. And for like really long amounts of time. So we'll see. But I feel like the construction crews kind of, whether they're allowed to or not, kind of take precedent over everyone else using the street. Or oh, they, they absolutely way, do. Least, yeah. yeah, they absolutely do. David, I'm going to give you the last word. Uh, should Toronto be doing a better job managing the, all of this construction? I wish I had a silver bullet for it, but I don't. Uh, if you're going to have a lot of economic activity, particularly building on streets, you're going to have traffic confusion and you're going to have people with higher tempers than they want to have. So I think you have to grin and bear it. I remember when they put in the very first subway, it was five years that they had boards on Young Street from Bloor down to Queen. Uh, and uh, at that time, people thought it was the end of the world. They couldn't move on and it goes away. So I think you have to grin and bear it. The alternative, of course, is not to have construction and not to have movement in the city. And, and it seems to me that I, I, I'd much rather deal with the problems of construction than the problems of no construction. Okay, on that positive note, we will wrap up. Tune into the town for this week. Thank you so much, David Crombie, Karen Stintz, and Lauren O'Neill. Thanks, Libby. Thanks, Thank you. Bye. And we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we will talk about that conservative leadership debate. Was anybody watching? <laughs> I'll give you some of the numbers when we start that chat after a break. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Did you watch the third and last conservative leadership debate last night? If so, you were part of a very small select group. It got 18,000 viewers on YouTube, a mere 300 on Facebook Live, and I watched it on CPAC but have not seen audience numbers. Now, this out of more than 600,000 party members who can actually vote. And aside from slagging the two contenders who did not show up, Jean Charest's pitch was that he is the only electable candidate. I have a track record of uniting. And this party, if there's one thing this party has to sort out, more than anything else, because we paid a high price for it in 19 and 21, a very high price, and now the country's paying a high price for it, is getting our country, our party organized and united. I will do that. I know how to do it. It's what I've done all my life. And here's what frontrunner Pierre Poilievre had to say. I could have been cooped up in a little hotel room around a small table listening to a defeated liberal premier. Okay, well, uh, I have to agree with him about the first part. So if, if the party had set up to make this almost unwatchable, they couldn't have done it better in a nondescript little room around a nondescript table. And have they not heard that these are visual media? And uh, someone should have told Jean Charest to comb his hair and maybe do something to avoid looking so pasty. And maybe I'm being shallow on this. You people out there can tell me, am I being shallow? 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. But now to get to the substance behind it, let's go to Michael Diamond, Principal of Upstream Strategy Group, and Janet Ecker, former Ontario PC. MPP and 
former Ontario Finance Minister. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us. Hello. So, Janet, uh, what purpose did that last debate serve, if any? Well, it's a really good question, but at least they didn't have those crazy bazooka horns or whatever it was. So maybe this was a step up um, in terms of a debate. Um, listen, anytime you put your candidates in front of your potential voters, it's, you know, it's a good thing. I mean, it's part of the accountability mechanism and, and that should be happening in a political organization. So, and yeah, nobody, I mean, very rarely do debate formats get good brownie points. I mean, there are some that do really well, but, uh, you know, people bitch about them all the time. So having your candidates out there, having them an opportunity to sort of show their stuff, as it were, is always a good thing. Um, and uh, it is unfortunate that, you know, two candidates decided not to do it. Um, you know, it does sort of show, I think, disrespect for the party. I mean, you can agree or disagree, and I've been part of debates that I thought were a bit crazy in my past, but, you know, you have to respect the process, and it was unfortunate that uh, two of them didn't. Michael, uh, what do you think? Look, having watched it, I think that uh, the uh, two candidates who skipped it probably made the right decision. Uh, in many ways, you know, the first uh, English debate uh, moderated by Tom Clark uh, with the uh, uh, bazooka music, as uh, Janet said, or bazooka sounds, was really uh, ridiculed for being poor. And I think last night was actually even worse. So, you know, uh, uh, I can't fault either candidates. These were, this debate was sprung on after, uh, the schedule was put, uh, put together at the request of, uh, Mr. Charest's campaign. I understand why, you know, they, they're scrambling and they need to try and get anything to gain some traction. They have a pretty big deficit to catch up to. Uh, but, uh, fully understand why, you know, Pierre Polyev would have thought that it was a much better use of his time to be in, uh, Saskatchewan getting the vote out. And, you know, Libby, you referenced the numbers on, uh, you YouTube watching. Of course, we don't know the television numbers, and it was on several of the networks, but uh, Pierre's uh, YouTube and uh, social media feeds actually had four times the viewership of the parties on the debate last night. So I think, you know, he was able to connect with many more people. And and, and furthermore, I mean, I just wish since it happened, the party had done a better job at selecting questions that actually allowed each candidate to project how their vision uh, would connect to their plans to win the election. And I think that was uh, not really uh, something they focused on. Talking about a conservative plan on climate change, for example, isn't isn't that. You know, let the candidates uh, talk about that if that's part of their vision. But it was too uh, too forced last night. Well, yeah. And, I, and again, you know, I, I don't want to harp on the visual setup, but I mean, it was really bad. It was it was literally quite hard to watch, Janice. Yeah, listen, I, I don't disagree with you, uh, Libby. And uh, in this technical age, I mean, that is one of the things that you've got to be competitive uh, in terms of your the quality of your technology and the use of your technology these days. Right. It's a it's a uh, a a standard skill set, if you will. So, listen, I don't disagree with that um, at all, and uh, we will see how, uh, but, you know, but at the end of the day, the quality of that debate in terms of the optics and everything else um, are not going to, uh, is not going to uh, change a lot of votes, I don't think. I mean, what's important is what, you know, whether people agreed or disagreed with Leslie Lewis and Pierre Colivaire not attending, whether they agreed or disagreed with, uh, Jean Charest and the other candidates who were there and what they said, that'll be what'll drive their decision at the end of the day. Jean Charest and a lot of other people, and there's this group, uh, uh, Tories on Centre Ice, Centre Ice Conservatives, um, 
they keep saying that uh, the moderate wing of the party, Jean Charest, they he is the only person who could win a general election. Uh, so, Janet, is that argument resonating? Well, I think for a lot of, of uh, uh, potential conservatives and current conservatives, red Tories or whatever, blue liberals, uh, disaffected NDPers, a lot of folks, I think it does resonate um, because we've seen in many jurisdictions uh, and even in Canada, you know, where we have political candidates, political leaders who are taking very divisive positions. And that doesn't mean they can't have strong policy decisions, but I think taking positions and being disrespectful of, uh, you know, their, their colleagues on the platform and, and the process and that, I don't think that helps. Um, you know, that being said, there's no question that uh, there are a lot of voters out there looking for a political home who are feeling quite disaffected all round in all three parties. So I think there's a lot of potential out there for realignment. Um, I would argue, and again, you know, speaking like, I guess that people call me a red Tory. Um, you know, Sheree uh, has certainly had more appeal to me, and, and I always think, you know, being in politics is one of the few jobs where people somehow don't think experience counts. Um, certainly in this day and age, I would argue that it does. So I think Sheree definitely has uh, uh, a strong point in his favor on that. There's no question Pierre's campaign is reaching out, you know, is hitting a lot of people, younger people. Um, you know, he's resonating with a lot of people. Look at the crowds that he's, he's uh, uh, attracting. So there's no question he is resonating. And we'll see at the end of the day um, if uh, how the voting system works, um, you know, because it isn't just a one member, one vote kind of process. It's a point system by riding. And two things. One, the strategy that Pierre and Jean's campaigns took in terms of how they, they pursued memberships in those ridings will count. But secondly, certainly getting people out to vote, or not getting out, but mailing in their ballots uh, just because somebody's joined doesn't mean they vote. And so those two factors, I think, um, are going to be really critical in terms of the, the actual outcome here. Uh, Michael, again, do you think that uh, uh, concentrating on that, that argument that Charest is the only person who could win a general election, is that resonating? Is that the right message? No, I, I don't think it is. And uh, perhaps for uh, members who are already inclined to support Mr. Charest, electability is what matters. Uh, but you know, by and large, conservative membership, uh, for better and for worse, is a very fickle group and often focuses on winning for values, not winning for the sake of power. And I think there's a lot of members who would see that as a key differentiation between uh, the Liberal Party of Canada uh, and uh, you know the various conservative parties uh, that, that we've seen, uh, you know, and the you know, one that's now united and, and, and one House of Conservatives. I, I also actually think that although I truly do believe Mr. Soray has a uh, very clear and good path to win a general election, I think Mr. Polyev does also, and I just think they happen to be very different paths, where I see, you know, um, Mr. Soray having the ability to really be a bit of a game changer for the party and for back in, in a way that we haven't seen seats fall uh, in our favor since the Mulroney days. I think Mr. Polyev uh, has room to uh, grow throughout the country, including Quebec, not quite to the same extent, but Ontario, Atlanta, Canada, and some of the urban uh, centers where we we lost seats uh, uh, to the west of Ontario. 
just by focusing on issues of today with a conservative solution. He's really been out, out in front talking about inflation uh, well well before most commentators. He's been talking about housing affordability for a long time. So I think he's a, a politician who really connects well to the zeitgeist and uh, is proposing conservative solutions instead of the trap frankly, that we fell into in the last couple of elections where we're fighting yesterday's battles. And, you know, the voters don't care. Uh, it's not going to motivate anyone to vote. So I, I believe both of these men, uh, and it will be one of them, I, I, I believe, who will win. I think it's more likely to be Mr. Polyev, but they both have uh, very, uh, I think, good cases to make of how they can win an election. It just happens to look different. And I think if you're talking about, you know, your advantages that you can win an election, it uh, misses the mark for uh, your average rank-and-file conservative member. Poilievre hmm. uh, was talking about inflation early, but he, he was also talking about Bitcoin, which uh, I, I don't know how he would be penalized uh, for that. Janet, is that a big factor? Well, he took a couple of positions early on in, in the campaign that were a little uh, uh, perplexing. Some would say bizarre. The Bitcoin one certainly was one of them. Like, let's go out and all get Bitcoin. That'll fight inflation. Just, of course, when the, then the Bitcoin market crashed. Um, so I, I, whether that matters at the end of the day, probably not. Um, to a lot of voters, I mean, that's new and different, right? And he's certainly trying to, to come across that. But I think it does sort of speak to his judgment. Um, and I would say that his uh, picking the fight with the governor of the Bank of Canada, um, I mean... <laughs> It's not something that we need in terms of policy options for resolving the problems the country has. And, um, you know, I don't know whether he recognizes the risk that you take when you politicize your central bank. And there's lots of countries who could say, don't go there. And, and you know, here's the bad things that happened to us when we did, when we did. Um, so whether he understands it or whether he, because he's a smart guy. Uh, or whether he felt it was worth the risk for the political position, I don't know. But uh, there were a couple of uh, things in the early days, and he seems to have backed off on a fair bit of it. But you kind of wonder about the judgment that went into uh, both those positionings. Okay, final question. Uh, do uh, either of you, uh, starting with Michael, have an inkling of uh, what percentage of people have already voted and what percentage of, of voter turnout you expect? So it was actually, uh, the, the last report from the party I saw was actually quite low of the uh, uh, over 670,000, I believe it was, uh, eligible voters. I think it was only about 14% of ballots had been received, and of, of that, it is a rather complicated process, and there's a lot of room for human error in terms of how you have to all the envelopes and include identification. So uh, of that, I believe it was 14%. Don't know what that was of, uh, of, uh, you know, final, uh, or sorry, approved, uh, mail-in ballots. Voters who make that mistake will get a second chance. But, uh, you know, I would expect, frankly, higher turnout, uh, than last time. I think you see these things pick up well towards the end where you get really, literally an avalanche of ballots in, in the mail and by delivery, uh, to the, uh, auditing firm. So, uh, I, I would expect you'll see turnout north of 70, uh, but right now it is uh, pretty low. Well, yeah, I mean... Great. I was just going to say that the latest as of Friday is 22%, so 140,000. Now, again, how many of those are, are valid? As Michael said, I don't know, but... So it's growing, and hey, we're all deadline-driven people, and my guess is that over the next couple of weeks, if you ha if your ballot hasn't gone in there, uh, I suspect you're going to be getting uh, the usual uh, get-out-the-vote harassing calls from candidates. So uh, Michael, hopefully Michael's right that it is up in the, you know, 70-some percent. 
that would be really, really good because there's no question um, between the, the group of them, they have sold more party memberships in our party than has ever been done before. And hopefully that's a good sign. And hopefully those people will stick with us. Okay. Well, I guess that also means there's room for more debate and more appeals to those voters. And we'll be talking about this again for sure. Thanks so much, Michael Diamond and Janet Ecker. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. We are going to take another break. And when we come back, we will talk to the chief of the Science Advisory Board. And U of T has made a fairly controversial decision about vaccination. We'll get to that. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Frontline healthcare workers have been under an unprecedented level of stress. We have been hearing that from a lot of people, the latest being the scientific director of Ontario's COVID-19 science advisory table. And he says that this is not just about the COVID pandemic. It's about entering the pandemic with one of the lowest amounts of capacity for acute care of any comparably wealthy country. And he has also weighed in on the University of Toronto's requirement that all students in residence have their third shots. And that is a requirement that some are taking issue with. So what do you think? Should we be doing that? 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And I'm now joined by Dr. Fahad Razak, the Scientific Director of the COVID-19 Science Advisory Table. Hi, doctor. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Libby. Great to be back. Well, uh, people are starting to think about going back to university. What do you think of that requirement? I, I think it's reasonable, but it's not a black and white case. So let me tell you some of the advantages. So when you receive that thorough dose as a young person, uh, typical university student, it certainly gives you some additional protection against severe disease and disease ending up in hospital, uh, for example. But the truth is young, otherwise healthy people are not really at that high risk for getting really sick. And so that protection is meaningful, but it probably doesn't give a huge benefit for most young students. Um, on the other hand, there are some additional factors. It will give you some additional protection against transmitting the infection. That probably lasts for about a couple of months, and students are really packed in in residence. And so even a few months of additional protection, I think, is valuable. Um, and finally, if you are fully vaccinated and you do get sick, the isolation requirement is lower than if you're unvaccinated. And so, again, imagine you have thousands and thousands of students packed into residence. If you start to get students becoming positive and then requiring an, an isolation room, how do you practically do that? And so there are some real benefits that I can see uh, for this policy. And overall, I think it's beneficial. Well, you're saying uh, the isolation requirements, uh, but don't they apply to people with two vaccines, two vaccinations? That's right. So I'm using the comparison of two doses versus zero doses. Um, the isolation requirement is lower. What we do know is that as you get additional doses, the period that you're infectious does also go down. So definitely the isolation requirement is two doses versus no doses and not specifically about the third doses. But what we are seeing from the scientific studies is how long your infectious does seem to decrease if you do have additional doses. And, and uh, what are those numbers? 
So the numbers right now are for, so the, the typical public health requirement is five days if you are um, two dose vaccinated or more. So definitely three and four doses as well included in that. And 10 days if you're not. And then between day five and day 10, if you have uh, been vaccinated, you're still encouraged to wear a mask in any uh, indoor setting. And if you're symptomatic, of course, to still avoid people. There's a lot of new research that is showing that people are remaining positive, an important proportion are remaining positive, even beyond five days. And there are things like positivity on a rat test that can help indicate that you're still probably infectious. So my personal recommendation to people is that they do consider those things. Do you feel infectious? Do you have symptoms? Is your rat test positive? And especially in those scenarios to avoid indoor settings where you're going to expose other people. Now, that just may not be practical for many people. And there's always a balance between that and other commitments that people have, like school, like work, and other things. Uh, yeah, but what does the latest research show in terms of how long you're infectious with three doses, say, versus two doses? Uh, yeah, it's, it's not, there's not a single number I can give you on that, Libby. Generally, it looks like the infectious period goes down with additional doses, but it depends on a lot of other things. It depends on the specific variant that you're infected it with. And so, for example, right now, we don't have data yet on BA5 because we're experiencing it right now. Um, so it depends on your age, your other health conditions. It depends on uh, the variant you're infected with. So the, I don't have an exact number to give you. The general effect we're seeing is with additional doses, the duration of positivity does go down. That's generally what we're seeing. I have to say just anecdotally that that uh, here in our company, when we went through the worst of it with virtually no cases, no nothing, that that with this last one, people have been getting it and they've been sick. And and some testing positive longer than five days. Everybody's, you know, here we are uh, vaccine maximalists. For the uh, most absolutely. Part. I mean, a great example, a very public example of this is uh, President Biden in the United States, right? So newly infected, obviously fully vaccinated to the extent that he can be vaccinated, and yet is remaining positive and symptomatic outside of that five-day window. Well, so, that's that's I'm th- th- that was attributed to Paxlovid. Paxlovid contributes to it, but that phenomenon we're seeing even in people who are who have not taken Paxlovid. So for some uh, proportion of people with Paxlovid, you're getting a little bit of this rebound effect. But certainly the fact that you're seeing people positive beyond five days is now being widely reported. And, and there's studies, as I said, backing this up. Now, let, let me be also be clear. The majority of the infectious period seems to occur within that first five days. But five days is not a magical number. But again, from a public health perspective, they do need to set some uh, cutoff for when they're going to make this decision. And many countries uh, and provinces and states like Ontario have chosen that five-day window. Now, look, there is certainly evidence that some people remain infectious beyond that. So uh, I think we have to consider that. But but you are seeing that five-day number used by many places. Now, uh, U of T has come under a bit of fire. Have you been in touch with other universities? Do you know if they're considering the same requirement for Residents? My understanding is that they are considering the same requirements. And I think, as I said, it's not a it's not a black and white decision. There are some advantages, as I described. And, you know, the, the, the counter argument is that this is a group of people who are very low risk uh, for severe disease. Um, what I would say is important to consider in this discussion as well is that this is not a limitation on the ability of students to get an education and get a degree. This is they're able to attend lectures do everything else they need to do. This is specifically about 
the on-campus, higher-risk environment of many students packed into a residence. And, you know, as someone who went to the University of Toronto myself, the majority of the time that I was at the university, I did not live on campus. There is abundant housing throughout the city. So on-campus residence is not mandatory in order to do your degree. That That's interesting. I mean, there there are public health people and doctors who think this is really a smart idea and other universities should adopt it. It would definitely increase the third. So the, the, the evidence about anyone over the age of 18 getting a third dose, I think there's pretty universal agreement that it's beneficial to get a third dose of the vaccine. There are legitimate questions around it, for example, in a scenario where you have someone who's had two doses already of the vaccine and they've been additionally infected as the majority of Canadians were additionally infected in the last six months that the Omicron wave went through, there are legitimate questions about it. For an otherwise young and healthy person, how much additional benefit even beyond that are they getting when they then add a third dose on top of that? That's a legitimate question. So that's why I'm saying that this is not black and white. We don't have enough evidence to say, yes, you as a young person, if you've had two doses and you've been infected, you will have clear benefit with an additional dose on top. It would be my recommendation still. And I think it makes sense as a policy when you're talking about the many tens of thousands of students that universities have to uh, provide a safe environment for. And, you know, another important consideration here is that the, the student unions, which represent the interest of students and not the university at the University of Toronto, have also advocated for this policy. Okay. Uh, we are completely out of time. Dr. Fahad Razak, thanks so much for that. Always great to be with you, Libby. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, people, Free For All Friday is coming up tomorrow. So if you weren't able to get through, if there's something else you want to talk about, something that you heard here today that you want to tell us what you think about, please call back then. I will be here and I am looking forward to it. That's all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.